With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Comic like a clown, no doses, all pages. Bagging, boarding Batman in the gutter like a Macy. Storytellers, we some fellas, we some felons. Isn't amazing, acapella, baricella, cause this shit is so contagious. Mouse on the summaries, compiling, got the show. While the cycle spitting knowledge on the Yeti like a pro. Keep the babble, we the rabble, don't step to the squad. We get active, and haters like a cephalopod. You don't like fish talk? Do you hate a tomato? We the cuttlefish killers, tentacles on the tape. Greatest five stars if you cherish your life. Bucky Barnes hit squad spraying lead in your pipe. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Is This Just Bad? Is This Just Bad? The best podcast you never heard of. I'm your host, Professor Mouse, joined as always by the CB Cosmologist and Teddy, and we are in the thrall, the lure of Monstoberfest, colon, the Monster Smash. And do we have a couple of fucked up movies to tell you about today? Can I say something? (laughs) up top go for it this is a planned you know this is like i prefaced last week's recording with like this is when we really try to have some kind of thematic focus uh in our in our podcast and you know if if you were to watch all of these movies and follow along with the podcast and stuff you would think we put like a lot of thought into this because things are 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 shaping up to be like very cohesive but when i tell you that we shit out a google document (laughs) like to organize this month based on like a sex monsters letterbox list that is true and somehow at least for me there's like regularities in this. There's thematic uh, convergences. There's like a, a an interesting Venn diagram that's developing, and it is all not by design. Just <laughs> like this was very much thrown together, and I'm I'm happy about that. But I just wanted to clarify that, like, yes, while we did put thought into this, like how it's shaping out is surprising even me. Mouse, it's better to be lucky than good. <laughs> We're getting lucky with the monsters this month. <laughs> um, so let's talk about it. So today, today is the lure episode. Because remember, the optional reading is not mandatory. So today is the lure episode. Now, when we were talking about the lure, this was I think one of the few movies on this list that none of us had seen. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. I'd never even heard of this. And we were, you know, frankly, flummoxed, bamboozled, run amok, flabbergasted, (laughs) flabbergasted by the disparate like uh, movie posters 
because it's a Polish movie. It was released in the United States and elsewhere and internationally. And so there are various different posters and those posters correspond or, or reflect different tones and moods. And then you read what the movie is about and the genre is like horror musical and it's about mermaids. And so none of it adds up. And after watching the movie, I, I think it's probably from a marketing standpoint, kind of impossible to 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 make a sort of a, a, a singular advertisement that can encompass because even the trailer for this movie is pretty bad. And it is because the, the movie is so unique and bizarre uh, criterion release, which, you know, signals a certain level of, I think, artistry. <laughs> um, and that was one of the things that I was the most interested in going into the lore was what the fuck is this movie about? Because truly, like I, I had I had no clue based on anything that I had seen or read and all of the different uh, articles that I read, like what what could the mo movie possibly feel like? And so what are some like initial reactions out the gate before we get to the monster fuckery, which we'll get to <laughs> of the just general experience of watching this, I would say very unique film. I'd have to say it was uh, surprisingly enjoyable, especially in the headspace of watching all of the stuff we did last week. Just there were some, yeah, there were some challenging, like there were some challenging like things presented from those movies, especially from Spice and especially from Species and how it was all presented. This one felt incredibly novel um so it's just a lot of bonus points for the sheer ability for it to like just get be as entrancing as it was uh which i you know purposeful language but still it was <laughs> it used it, it expanded upon the sound cues and didn't just make i maybe i'm going too far into gushing about it but i really think it used the film form to its advantage to make the entire experience uh it, the entire experience really really immersive is what i'm going for um and that's just especially when you're looking at something like what we looked at last week if there's immersive, a submersive perhaps a i was gonna say if there's a month where you don't have to apologize about gushing <laughs> monster it... smash it is good to know monster smash <laughs> truly i found this delightful uh just delightful to watch um enjoyed it the whole way through it hooked me um to the point where uh even when you get into the he's shaking his head at me um even when you get into the like truly grotesque like halfway through the film um i'm already bought in uh you know it's not it real to you in it did it real man hook line and sinker okay okay stop <laughs> stop for the, rest of the show no that's just not gonna happen <laughs> Uh, you're gonna sink the show. Um, all right. So it's uh the as you said, the musical form of this is really clever. Um, it's both very much. Uh, I mean, about <laughs> when the I guess it's uh golden is singing about everybody's miserable. Um, the weather's terrible. Like this is the most Polish thing I've ever seen. 
uh, it's just like very much that kind of classic Eastern European. Think about the tone of The Witcher. Um, mm. That you know, everybody, that kind of melancholy that pervades, but it manages to balance that melancholy with being a delightful and engaging to watch. So, um, to uh, Teddy's point about last week, some of the themes we talked about, some of the stuff that we wanted out of um, life force and didn't get, and sort of species approaches, and Splice maybe starts talking about with, you know, what's the role of the woman as monster and. Um, both of these films this week managed to really address those in much more uh, complete ways that I really enjoyed. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I mean, this is not a genre. And that's what makes this particular month so interesting to sort of think through, because there when we did Nosferatu, the vampire film is a subgenre of horror. There's no monster fucking subgenre. Like that doesn't exist. That is an activity. It's something that happens in film. Um, it's something that is, is very much, you know, a product of, of, of fandom and like fan fiction and things like that. It is much more sort of, um, I would say culturally tolerable. Uh, imagine like the the the, the sort of um, actual penetrative act between King Kong, the woman in King Kong in 1933, like that. Those movies are are all super implicit, and we have seen a lot of different uh, penetrative acts and monster fucking. You want to jump in here? Yeah, I want to push back a little bit because I agree that while it's not a genre, it's interesting that the lore specifically goes in. It's an adaptation sort of of The Little Mermaid. So what I would say is that monster fucking as an act shows up in fairy tales. Beauty and the Beast, Little Mermaid. These are things that those stories get repeated over and over and get adapted over and over. And so while it's not its own genre, I, we're going to continue to see these films pin themselves to some mythic tropes whether it's mermaid beauty and the beast and in some cases like a demon deal sure i would have to say like oh and oh sorry yeah i one of the uh going in that it is interesting to compare genre and motif because if you look at as, as you were talking about uh cause the uh the beast husband or wife is a fantastically old trope. Mm -hmm. And in some ways I want to, I, I have that impulse to call it a full genre because you see it. So presented in so many very culturally specific ways, the uh, pink dolphins in the, in uh, Brazil, you have uh, the shark. There's some shark, uh, monster and like kind of shark godmen in uh the pacific you have beauty and the beast as you said you have a lot of the jiragumo in uh, japan which is a man marries a giant spider and disappears and everybody's like well you got eaten bro you have just such a specific trope but i i, I and i guess i would want to pose it to you all is this trope uh, motif uh, trope slash motif ingrained enough to be called a subgenre because of all of these fairy tales yeah, it's definitely like a, a 
continuing theme throughout. But to Mouse's point, it's not something that's like easily tagged in movies. And oh, so okay. we, sw- I think we've kind of backed ourselves into discovering that what we're really doing is like a beast marriage month sort of um but those are it's hard to advertise those Uh, you either go like super romantic and implicit or you get there by accident in like a scary monster but kind of sexy movie um so harder to advertise perhaps that's i would say this is a very uh, to both of your points uh in terms of the marketing for this movie i think it not exactly proves a negative but it proves that in terms of marketing, the selling it to every market just doesn't work. Like, yeah. it, truly, you can't just say, oh, the if we sell it in this way, the lowest, com- not lowest, the common denominator of everybody will buy it. Because, no, nah, like, this movie is, shows that you can't do that, and it's not going to be at least successful. Yes, you can manufacture that much more easily but it will not successfully market the film you have if you apply those same logic is by the same well we'll try and just slip it by to everybody because absolutely not (laughs) right yeah and i think in, in order to constitute a genre it has to be sort of immediately recognizable and legible like when you say vampire movie it is obvious what you're referring to when you say monster fucking movie what what is it and as we've been going through this month and and this is a very small sample size um and this will be upended by shape of water next next week all four of these movies five of these movies have centralized women as the monster mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that seems to be the common denominator it's either a condemnation or a send up of the histor- the hysterical woman as a trope and that hysteria is often embodied or physically represented by a kind of monstrousness or the grotesque that adheres in the woman either through um the facade present in life force and species or the sort of um a the 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 embodied monstrosity of the women in splice and in siren and Mm. that seems to be the sort of through line and it is so interesting because you're talking about beauty and the beast and sort of like mythic tales that in sort of like contemporary american cinema monster fucking movies centralize women as the monsters and that i believe has to do more with cinema sort of obsession with the penetrative act and the objectification of women and so it would only make sense that they would be the temptresses or the alluring or the or the sexually sort of um deviant that would uh, entrap or attack or um, trick a man. Um, yeah, to your point there, you know, it, you can't figure out exactly like, hey, beast marriage, monster fucking, what does that mean movie-wise? But as soon as you say like, 
monster woman you're like oh yeah ginger snaps and species and like you can think of five movie posters right off the top of your head yeah i guess if you look at monster man there are outside of the draculas and some of the like modern the underworlds and some of these uh mid-2000s film none of them are exactly the thing that we're going to see with shape of water like the monstrous man the invisible man as time goes on we've seen him more about the evil the the uh voyeuristic uh voyeuristic and straight up assaulting um which has some parallels to at least in my head the the rise of the internet as the there's this invisible force always watching and more of a victimizing force mm-hmm but outside of that, none of the other monstrous men are necessarily geared towards a the same objectification gaze and the same same adherence to what kind of monster woman or beast marriage movies can be. Yeah, like even in The Fly, it was like, oh, I guess The Fly is a little different, <laughs> but still. Do they fuck in the fly? They you're do. Talking, you're talking about the That's gold bloom one? The gold bloom one. Yeah. And it and it wasn't when he was still all Jeff Goldblum. That dude was he, he was hitting some John Hurt and Elephant Man levels. Yeah. Talk about a movie Coswin watch. Um <laughs> have you seen the Jeff Goldblum fly? No. It's very slimy. I mean, it's there. I mean, the the budget for slime alone in that movie was <laughs> half the GDP in Canada. Uh, <laughs> so, with that sort of scaffolding, um, let's talk about the movie. Let's One of the things that I appreciate about both movies this week, because I don't know fuck about shit about mermaids or sirens, I know. I I know the story of the Little Mermaid. I've never seen it. Uh, I know the story of the sirens from the Odyssey. I don't know anything else about them. And so these movies, and I, I maybe recognize that they're just a general sort of like cultural vacuum when it comes to understanding or or being familiar with mermaids beyond like Tom Hanks and Splash. Really explain all of like what mermaids are and what they do and their powers and shit like that. And so there were some interesting bits like the cutting off the tail removes the voice, which is, I guess, a convention of Little Mermaid, which is a convention of mythology. They also have telekinesis, which is interesting where they're able to communicate with each other telepathy yeah but they make like dolphin sounds oh yeah telepathy and i was wondering was that because it didn't seem like anyone else reacted was that that was the the music that was playing or the noises that were playing were in each other's heads not external well i got the sense that they were like like dolphins just communicating at a register that human ears can't perceive so it, it was happening both internally and externally God, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they need to stay wet, otherwise they dry out and they lose their tails, which is an interesting part. They don't have any genitalia, and that is signaled 
in the beginning as like a clear source of conflict. Um, they have, you know, these like phallic looking tails that represent something, I think, broader than just like their fantastical elements. And they are able to sort of like lure people in with song. Hence, like the musical bit of this. I think the movie did a great job establishing those rules. Those rules are unfold over the course of the film. So there's not like a person at the beginning or a voiceover being like, all right, here's the deal. These are mermaids. And the mermaids have the following eight rules. It, it The rule emerges when it's relevant with them coming out of the water, being invited out of the water, and then entering into this like cabaret situation. Yeah, totally. The um, uh, taking the song element and uh, extending it to the entire film and making the film a musical, brilliant. So much fun. Um, and it's like once they enter the world, it's like that, that first scene, they're in the water, you've got the band on the shore playing, but it's just like they're just hanging out. And then as they come into the human world they sort of bring the music with them and then everything around them is a musical which was delightful yeah how did you well how did you feel about the music were there any bops jams that stood out i mean the general synth wave uh, vibe really stood out yeah these are not like show tunes this is not like Rodgers and Hammerstein. This is like, I I guess what they would call like a rock opera type situation, but it's not that either. Um, the it's a pop opera. It's a pop opera. Honestly, that first song where they're in the city and going shopping reminded me very much of like an anime opening theme. Oh God, what were the lyrics of that song? I w- I meant to write it down. Yeah, the the city will show us exactly what we're lacking. Yeah. Um, and we you know we gotta make our we've chosen to live here. We want to make our names for ourselves here. Stuff like that. Yeah, that one was great. It was like they were in like a mall or like a Macy's or whatever, and they were like doing the whole song and dance there. And there is like a level of like pageantry and stagecraft here, where I mean. It is, it is a, musicals are like a stage production or whatever. And they do have these like very sort of rarefied sets and, and, and moments. And it lends to the magical realism of the film that these uh, absurd things happen, you know, in, 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 in the middle. One of the things about like a musical that's grounded in reality is that there's nothing, there's no like rational, uh, there's no rational response that elicits a song in real life. Like there's never, you're talking to me and then I, I respond to you in song. But when you're dealing with fucking mermaids and shit who are getting uh, chopped in half and then sewn together and, and, you know, can sing and do telepathy and shit like that, it really does elevate the and 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 contextualizes the 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 you know arguably absurd activity of of dance or dancing and singing at inappropriate times 
which I found really well done in this film. Yeah, I think, you know, think about Rocky Horror. Musicals and monsters share the ability to work in metaphor and work in realms of like heightened magical realism, right? Mm -hmm. So they don't maybe get uh, put together as often as they should, but it feels right that you're already dealing with this like, this is too weird to deal with on just like a completely dramatic, realistic level. So throw a song in there we might as well <laughs> yeah um so the the film involves two mermaids one named golden one named silver um who join a cabaret and become this sort of like uh curiosity a public curiosity and we know from their conversations with one another that they are there for a good time not a long time um, but one of the mermaids, silver, golden, which one gets chopped in half? Silver. silver. Silver, uh, falls in love with this like doofus, which I found hysterical that she fell in love with that guy. Um, there is, you know, so or over the course of, of the film, you have them like hiding their secrets but what's interesting about it is that everybody knows they're mermaids right and so they're like hiding certain parts of themselves and their identities and stuff like that but everybody's just chill with them being mermaids that live in their house (laughs) they're just like in the tub with their massive tails and shit like that um the love story i think that centralizes the, the 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 tension and the conflict of this film is worth talking about because this is like the monster fucker bit question on a practical level there is a way to penetrate the tail that the creepy man discovers at the beginning this is correct yes so that's what he was doing when he was sticking his fingers because their tails are full of like all kinds of shit like she pulls out you know, whatever uh, 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 the thing that she gives to the guy. Oh, she popped a scale off of herself. Oh, oh, oh. I thought it was like a barnacle or something. Um, okay, so there is. So explain the mermaid reproductive system for the audience. <laughs> yeah, they've got fish tails. Um, they have a what is it? A cloaca or something? <laughs> I don't know. A cloaca? Um, is that what that is? I think that's maybe for lizards. Not sure. Um, lizards and bugs. Yeah. And, birds. and birds, right? Yeah. But in any case, you certainly, if you're not a coward, um, you could you could have sex with them. And it's important for our sort of monster fucker matrix here that um, the doofus guitar player does not want to. Um, like the creepy old guy will. It's implied that the, fa- the drummer, the father, maybe? I don't know if the doofus is actually their kid you got the lead singer you got the drummer and then you got the younger guys living with them who definitely appears to be they're taking care of him as though he's their kid but i don't get the sense that that's necessarily true um the drummer there's there's a he's in bed with the lead singer and she she asks like why do your fingers smell like fish and so he probably is having sex with uh, one of those mermaids off screen 
But the core conflict there is that the um, there's a scene specifically where the uh, guitar player says, you know, you'll always be an animal to me. You'll always be a beast. Um, I don't want to have sex with you. We can't have a real relationship while you're a mermaid. Um, which forces her into the situation of like, well, I'm gonna chop my get my tail chopped off and get reconstructive surgical replacement to be a a real girl and that is or a fully human girl, which is exactly the um in the most literal body horror way what the Little Mermaid story is about mm-hmm. of sacrificing a piece of yourself, diminishing yourself in order to try to fit in, in order to try to be accepted only for that to not work out in your left. And the Hans Christian Andersen story ends tragically. Little Mermaid dies at the end of that. It's a allegory for his unrequited gay love for somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's very much like an outsider tragedy that this movie manages to nail in a way. The Disney film, which I love, um, it has a totally different outcome for that and it's a happy ending, but the same kind of sacrifice you have to give something up in order to fit in is I think what's being centralized here. And so it's different from the traditional sort of monster fucker uh, paradigm we've been looking at because here the monster is actually actively trying to become less monstrous. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's sad that that's happening. Yeah, yeah it's super yeah, sad. Good. Yeah, go for it. Oh, I was just going to say it also the idea of the underlying queer otherness of a lot of what's happening in some of these films. I think, I mean, it's hard to over like it's hard to overstate between like in some ways splices are not splice uh, species. um, It was very much weirdly about the procreation it wasn't about pleasure love or intimacy uh from the from the from the monster from not dren but sill um and then you have this complete other direction where the monster is going well let me do whatever i can and have this general well you have the comparisons between gold and silver Gold is like, no, I'm <laughs> I'm going back to the river often and I'm murdering whoever I want. And um, I love this because also you've got silvers all tied up with I want to fit into like a heteronormative relationship and be a girl for this guy. And then he's going to dump me and it's tragedy. And Golden's like, I'm going to fuck this lady cop and also eat men. Yeah. Um, and as a total and she's having like uh living her best queer mermaid murderer life here but is also stuck in this tragic relationship where she wants the best for her sister lover they call each other sisters but they definitely also make out um there's that great like other musical number where they've got mohawks and leather jackets and oh yeah yeah um that's that's a great number um but like they've got some kind of extremely complicated uh, codependent, neurotic, psychotic, erotic relationship going on with each other. Um, and so even though, to your point about this you know, queer other narrative, Golden wants to have it all and feels sorry for 
Silver being unable to like break out of this normal life that she is trying to have mm. uh, with the boy, and it it doesn't work out. It's sad. One yeah. other, and I don't know where to place this in the uh, pantheon of what this movie does, but uh, one of the things I really love is whenever golden has a singing number and i i watched this detail a couple times and i was just floored that it's actually happening um she's charming the audience like i every golden song is uh is almost doing like a a fates thing but she's staring she looks into the camera she's bringing the audience in um and one of the uh, an interesting film essay i watched a while back is about gaze within film and the only time that happens is with serial killers and psychopaths in film you have psycho you have um there's a there's a really cool documentary um about it's called the imposter not giving anything away but the guy who is accused of being the imposter one of the things he does is always stares directly into the camera and the essay posits that's to convince you that of his argument. So when we come back here, the usage of eye contact between Silver and the idiotic bassist and Golden and the audience is also a very interesting telling because this is this can almost be read as her view of what happened. Like she's telling us the musical story and in the world of this musical, she's convincing us there was nothing ever there. Silver did X, Y, and Z. Because if we look at it in terms of she was telling the story and then just assumes Silver fell into the into sea foam. Like there isn't like that explicit confirmation, which is like I find it such a delicious way of looking at this entire film as well. That's cool. I mean, uh, Richard the Third and Iago. Also talk to the audience all the time. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's oh, great. Oh, yeah. I guess uh, uh, Macbeth talks to the audience once in a while. Uh, a little so bit. So do the fates. Yeah. Ah, but cool. specifically, the like the size to the audience, usually by the bad guy or yeah. the villain or the outsider to like talk about their outsider nature. Um, you know, folks in Shakespeare do it all the time, but specifically the those main villains who are also protagonists, um, do it a lot throughout their plays. Same idea, kind of unreliable narrator, draw you in, convince you of their point of view. So awesome point that this is very much, it's a movie about both of them, but it's a movie told essentially from the perspective of Golden, if you want to go that far. In, like she, The characters in the film freeze when she's singing in a way that does not happen mm -hmm. else any other time. Yeah, the um, I wanted to give a little bit of context for this film. Um, I cannot pronounce the director's name. It's she's Polish, so she, and this is just on 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 the Wikipedia. But it's it's interesting context. She wanted to write a coming of age story echoing her own youth, so she recalled that her mother ran a nightclub where she had her, and this is in her words. First shot of vodka, first cigarette, first sexual disappointment, and first important feeling for a boy. The screenwriter also similarly wanted to write a story based on two friends of his that frequented nightclubs in the 1980s. 
and then they added this sort of like mermaid element to the to 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 create the sort of like outsider and so they do sort of draw upon the Hans Christian Andersen little mermaid mythology to sort of express that but some of the things that she invented and these are interesting bits um she invented their need to feed on human hearts and the propensity to attack the larynx of their victims i think those are interesting sorts of additions there i think the human heart thing is sort of like obviously symbolic um but the need to attack the larynx of their victims like a dog or something like that that's well, and also voice box they go after their voices as well and it's brilliant and not to keep harping on the genius of eric kripke but this kind of thing that you're that you're talking about is exactly how supernatural tr- treated monster stories which was take a monster and an urban legend that everybody's familiar with, tweak it, like their version was always slightly different, usually slightly more violent, but every change they made was always symbolic for a reason. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, it's got to be the heart because, you know, some kind of heart, uh, you know, uh, love reason. Or so it wasn't just like, well, you can do silver or stakes or headshots or whatever. We're going to choose one and it's going to be the one that has the most um uh the parallel that it hits your heartstrings the most effectively so yeah incredibly clever to tweak it both for you know we're just going to do it a little differently to make it a cool monster movie but it's not just that it's it's got story reason and that's the best kind of uh the parallel you can do does so let's talk about cuz there was one character who eluded me um, because I'm not familiar with this mythology at all. The dude. Triton. What? So that's Triton, I was assuming. I didn't know. So Triton wears a crown in The Little Mermaid, but he actually has horns in the story. Yeah, Triton, Um, if you go all the way back to ancient Greek, he's an undersea. He was either overthrown or forced into a subservient position when uh, Poseidon took over. Mm. So he's like another one of those, like he's been around for a long time. And the horn thing very much as, you know, Pan becomes the devil and you take the old gods and they become demons. And so the horns feel like it's in that vein Mm. of, I mean, he looks like Hellboy, right? He's got his horns shaved down or popped off. Um, And I think that's very much on purpose it also reminded me a lot of uh night watch and day watch the um was it russian uh we the watched the, movies? The, the vampire oh yeah, with other yeah. creatures in it it's got it's vampire was also a bunch of other creatures and like the the truce between the monsters who like the vampires patrol the daytime and the other creatures patrol the nighttime but it has that like gritty urban everybody's wearing leather um Blade and that, feel. yeah, kind of like Blade, but like that specific Eastern European spin on Blade, mm. which um might just be like Euro. <laughs> I don't know. It's like I really Euro liked it. Crash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah, the uh, Euro punk was sweet. Daywatch and Nightwatch are Russian movies. God, I haven't thought about these movies in forever. My dad took me to watch these movies when they were released in the United States in theaters. 
These were uh, dad movies. Yeah, my dad should be the same. I can't believe that he... How did... Man, marketing is nuts. Like, how did they so successfully market a Russian fantasy vampire movie to dads? Like, that doesn't make any sense. Well, because they are... Uh, in combination with these movies those movies are dad movies they're all about the relationships between father and sons uh the protagonist of protagonist antagonist you could say of both of them are is a haggard old man uh, like haggled mid 50s dude or mid 40s to 50s guy and then you also have there are patriarchs that are like oh man but granddad is the one with ultimate power (laughs) <laughs> edgy grandpa is night watch and day watch essentially <laughs> totally right um yeah. so you've got edgy triton here in that same vein of you know patriarch in the background he's trying to offer advice mm-hmm. like he he's a he's a to your point earlier about we only get the rules when they're relevant he manages to be an exposition machine without it feeling uh hackneyed like he slots in nicely um, and he becomes sort of a tragic figure also, like he hopes to help, uh, and, you know, it just doesn't work out. Like he's looking to teach Golden how to survive in the world. He's trying to make sure Silver doesn't turn into seafoam. He's also kind of a dick though. Uh, he doesn't give like constructive criticism when Golden's performing with him. Yeah. He's just like, eh, it was all right. <laughs> One day you'll get better at this. It it was interesting, though, that it was not a... He seemed powerless over their actions. Like, he wasn't... He wasn't regal or monarchical in the way that patriarchs can be. Um, he couldn't really direct their behavior at all. Like, the fact that they were... The fact that they were... I mean, just... Ruining their lives and he kind of was like you know don't try try not try not to <laughs> try not to ruin everything <laughs> without yeah. having any actual like control over them i think there's a parallel to be drawn between him and the lady cop who when you see you see them both for the first time in the same scene i think it's in that great um like punk number that they're doing um in their nightclub and um, there, until you know for sure that he's a, a, a monster, um, a mythical creature, they look indistinguishable. Same kind of leather jackets, same kind of cool demeanor. They're a little bit older. I assumed initially that she was also another creature um, until she reveals herself to be a police officer, which is so much worse. Um, but the same, same idea to what you said of uh, they're both trying to affect these kids behavior and are terrible at it to not effective at all yeah yeah and there's like also a there is a way that knowing that it is about sort of like celebrating or maybe not celebrating but documenting the hedonism of club culture and <clears throat> the way i mean adults are cavorting with children oftentimes in these in these settings and they have no moral high ground 
when it comes to like telling them what to do. Um, which is why it's so, it's just so interesting to watch them misbehave and to be such a danger. And maybe that's a sort of a satirical element to be such a literal danger of like ripping out hearts and stuff like that and being caught on the news about it. And the, the, the parents or the, uh, the, the parental figures being totally incapable or just like unable to stop it and, and, and seemingly like, negligent and you know any any sort of like gen x representation of a parent particularly a boomer parent will be like their fundamental core identity is rooted in indifference and negligence like a sort of violent negligence and that is an interesting thing that results in them being sort of murdered in their house or whatever um <laughs> Because, you know, they just like don't care what the teens are up to. They're just out there trying to figure it out themselves, getting chopped in half. Um, that vivisection had like very, very much a sort of underground um, like abortion feel to it. The way that it's sort of played and represented. Um, there's a I, I'm not sure if this loose thread was tied up, but like it's not that she gets the gets the bottom half of her body and loses like they make another mermaid right yeah we yeah. just don't ever see that girl again who's getting the fishtail added ah man i would i, I want <laughs> sequel like what's what's she up to <laughs> yeah does she get a magical voice when she gets the tail also don't know i don't know i don't know i don't know how this fucking mermaid shit works um Okay. Uh, gotta wait for the sequel. Actually, that's where I, could I tie in a uh, siren to mer uh, to the lore around I think, here? Yeah, the natural transition point. Because the thing, and we can go into the summation of Siren, but the thing that I really found interesting that connected these two movies is about the it involves the club scene slash the uh sideshow kind of area where you have the cabaret versus the sideshow where they're essentially both attractions and literal lures to this space mm -hmm. um it's a it's an interesting view in terms of the othering not necessarily of strictly queer folks but the othering in terms of any type of viewing of different performances mm. and i like that I mean, in Siren, at least, it's, again, very much more of the car sideshow carnival-esque. But you also have the same, the same kind of sexploitation undertones between both of these films. Certainly, yeah. And important that the beginning of um, the lure, where, as you said, like, oh, yeah, they're mermaids. No big deal. We'll just add them to the act. You get... Um, like a woman shooting a, a bow with her feet. Like, there's... They're already in like a carnival style environment to begin with. And so the mermaids just slip right in and uh, nobody loses a step. The way this movie opens rules. This, like this Siren or Siren. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Oh, definitely. Uh, the lure as well rules uh, the beginning. But Siren, that fucking Van Helsing guy. Like that dude in the movie, Mr. Nix or whatever the fuck his name is, 
rules so hard. Like he's just like in a warehouse. There's a summoning circle on the ground. <laughs> it's just like pure high octane. There's like a, a little girl pops out. He catches her. He kills a she kills a police officer, rips out, rips half of his face off. It's just like awesome. Um, and what is so I think interesting about this movie is this is like a and Teddy, maybe you have Shudder. There's a there's a particular kind of like B level horror movie, not in terms of like B level camp or some of the things that are associated with B level, but in terms of just like pure production, there's a a a a total like a a a bunch of these movies, and most of them exist on Shutter, the platform for horror movies. Yeah, they're shot on like shoestring budgets and they have like bad CG, but that bad CG is part of the whole experience. And the actors are not like they're 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 capable, they're good, but you always feel that they're delivering performances. Like it's not as immersive as uh, what I imagine Shape of Water or Titan to be like the the whatever highbrow stuff like this is very low budget stuff but because of that it does come off as 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 feeling more relatable somehow <laughs> where it's not like an otherworldly thing there there are just like moments in this movie where i so relate to what's going on and a lot of it does have to do with this like very low budget uh, you know, Robert Rodriguez, you know, indie spirit making something out of nothing type of production. I just 100% agree. I, I especially about Shutter, it's filled with films that are like you can sit there and go, Oh, you had enough budget for three actors in one room, and then like. 10 extras for two scenes like you have a lot of these films uh, um one of my favorite examples of those is the void where oh yeah it's it's you stretch a lot with people in cost with people not even in monster costumes just in here are some robes scare <laughs> these people in this in this uh hospital yeah it's like they definitely just had a bunch of those robes already or, or like a fucking PA was like, I found 200 robes and they're like, great. That's what the, that's what the people in this movie wear. Yeah. I love movies like this. And one of the reasons is that they have nothing to lose. You know, they just, they go for broke. Absolutely. And they really commit and you're absolutely right. Like uh, partially the naturalism of, you know, the main four bachelor party guys is because they're they're fine actors, but they're mostly like leaning back on a very naturalistic style. And it works for this because they feel totally relatable. Like the the tonal difference between Nick's delivering his like campy monologue and then the dudes being like, I got stuck in quicksand. It's not quicksand. <laughs> like that's just like shit talking with each other. Very funny. Works really well. Um, I will say okay, a couple of things. Um, this siren specifically is Southern Gothic, which I was not expecting and loved. Yeah. And the first shot is interview the vampire with like the weeping angel statue, and it goes 
interestingly, so it's shot in Georgia for tax reasons, among other things, but it leans into being in Georgia, which I really appreciate. Um, I, without revealing too much, at some time in a previous life, uh, spent a year as a Magic the Gathering judge in and around that area. That Thunderbird Inn, I passed a bunch of times. I know exactly where it is in Savannah. I saw that that sign, like, oh, shit, I've been there. Uh, and what's cool about that is it leans into all of these narratives of uh, legacy of slavery. They're getting branded, both like demonic mark of the beast, but also slavers brand. The cops are branded. The cops are slave catchers. They're bringing them back. Nick's my only gripe with him because I love the character. I think it's really well put together. He's like the embodiment of good old boy, plantation owner, deal with the devil. Nothing's really changed for him since the 1860s. I wish that that actor had been older. That actor, that character, if he's like 20 years older and gives the impression of potentially having been running this same scam for 300 years or whatever, I think adds some gravitas because, and this is partially the budget thing, but the guy they got to play next, I know a half dozen of those guys. Like, that's just a guy you see at a burlesque show or like around or doing steampunk at a renaissance festival. And like, there's guys like that. Um, but there's a certain amount of menace that this guy's really trying to go for mm. that he can't quite deliver. And it's not his fault. It's like doing a Shakespeare production in high school where everybody's the same age and you're trying to do King Lear. And there's just a certain amount of experience. Um, and you see this a lot on like CW shows, um, things like Shadow and Bone on Netflix, where everybody's just a little too young, except Ben Barnes. And, you know, then he's like playing with kids. And uh, so I think the character is extremely well designed. Um, but and there's a one scene where he's asking them for their memories, which is so clever because it doesn't immediately read as you're making a deal with the devil for your soul. But what are you if not a, uh, like um, a combination, a summation of your best memories? It's like the Westworld core, you know, core memory thing. Yeah, that parlor room beautifully set dressed. It's old. It feels like a plantation. It feels um, kind of like eternal in this like interview with a vampire slightly out of fashion and you open door number one and you got like the creepy back rooms that's i think the perfect sequence of the film to like get into this southern gothic creep mm -hmm. uh factor and the guy just can't quite sell it because he needs to be like 60 years old what do you think about that i liked him i thought he was I thought it was good. I thought he was the I thought he was giving a performance and I liked that he made strong choices. Um, it's interesting. I, I read him as a sort of like collector, but also like somebody who understands the occult in ways where he might be part of the like he might be demonic himself. Who knows? But at the beginning, he was giving me like Van Helsing vibes. Like, ah, he 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 immediately knew like what was going on. It's like I understand what this is. Um, and the only thing about Van Helsing, also an older guy. He he 
typically is an older guy. Although Peter Cushing was like, eh, I don't know. He was, <laughs> he, he got old. He got super old by the you know, Dracula 1978 or whatever the fuck. <laughs> Can't ever remember the year. Um, so I like the performance. I, I understand what you're saying though. Um, and there, but that is also the reality of casting. Like you said, like a Shakespeare play, it's the reality of casting an indie. Everybody mm-hmm. is cast based on like availability and relative skill. So it's like, we, I'm sure, I am sure that when they were producing this film, everybody was that guy at some point. They were like, well, you do what, how you, how would you do next? Nah, that doesn't sound right. Like, how would you do it? This you're, you're next. You're able to like deliver the fucking craziness that I need out of this guy. Um, which, you know, often does probably that often does happen when there are five guys in their thirties in a movie, it's like mix and match. Who's going to be who, um, the way we did it in film club. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think they had landed on the right guy. Um, the performance, I think that was for me, the, the best was the older brother, he had some lines in this movie that made me fucking LOL. When, first of all, he's a ridiculous person where he's like, let's go to Georgia for the bachelor party. And he has this line about Vegas that made me laugh my fucking ass off. He goes, oh, somebody in the car is like, what about Vegas? And he's like, Vegas is shit. It's hot as balls and it smells like hot balls. I laugh my fucking ass off. But I'm also thinking you're in the South. It's hot as balls there too. And also like Vegas is infinitely more fun. There's a moment in the, in the movie where the, and I think that this is probably a weakness in the script, but I didn't mind it where he, um, like the, the con the central conflict is that like he doesn't listen to his brother enough right and so he like steamrolled his brother he's like we're gonna do the bachelor party blah blah, blah this this the brother the main character at the beginning is like i don't want to do this type of like strip club thing and this is like a, a sort of like sexual liberation movie for him in a lot of ways where he's sexually unadventurous or unable to be adventurous in, in the bedroom at the beginning of the film. And so he's sort of coming out of his shell and this, like in a way where then, you know, he's attacked by a siren, a siren and penetrated by her tail. Um, but you know, it, that is sort of the, 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 his sexual awakening. Um, so that's the social conflict with his brother. At one point, they all get sort of lost and scattered in the woods. I don't know if this struck you as much as it struck me. But his brother's like, you know, we got to go, you know, whatever their names are, they're fucked. Let's go. And then his younger brother turns to him and he's like, you don't know my best friend's name, dude? <laughs> yeah. And that is the scene and the moment that they tie to his sacrifice at the end of the movie, this guy sacrifices himself because he didn't know 
his little brother's best friend's name. That is either genius writing or fucking horrible plotting. Because I like think it's perfect. He's an always sunny in Philadelphia character. Like truly, all of his lines are exactly like Mac and Charlie. He's you know a schlub who is makes terrible decisions and his moment of like redemption is this one heroic thing that he does for like a bunch of really mundane failings rather <laughs> the film it's really good yeah because one of the, the things oh, oh go for it oh sorry i was just gonna say one of the things i love about that is at least it may it, it's when you get to when you watch a lot of these horror movies, a lot of slasher films, there's the pantheon of folks who kind of are all right. Yeah, you're clearly going to get murdered by this movie, right? You have these archetypes that are designed for the audience to want them to get killed, and this was able to take not put it on its head, but give the death something a little more meaningful than ha ha. The person who got naked and took a shower died. Or, ah, this guy's kind of a jerk. Definitely dying. This dude's just happy and ethnic. Definitely dying. <laughs> yeah. In this case, it was, oh, okay, well, at least I can make it matter. It, it, they made it matter a lot more. You're totally right. Because if, if he died 20 minutes into the movie, I would have been like, oh, yeah, screw that dude. He's terrible. Lol. And then when he actually does it at the end, I'm like, oh, man, he's got a heroic, tragic sacrifice now. He was the best. Yeah, he was like my favorite of that crew. <laughs> the, I would hang out with that dude. Um, the, So <laughs> another thing that he establishes that I think is very, th I think this is a very funny a sort of like satirical point of the movie because this is something that people often do say for like bachelor parties or stag parties is like today we're not saying no to anything and it is just like the most extreme example of that becoming a disaster <laughs> it's like today dude we're fucking taking by the way they take shrooms and like <laughs> my <laughs> wife took shrooms and was unable to move for like five hours these guys take shrooms they're fighting bouncers they're in an eyes wide shut party. They're breaking fucking mythical creatures out of cages and shit. I was like juxtaposing that to P's like last three mushroom trips where she's just a burrito on the couch. Just like, what the fuck? This is the wrong drug to take for this movie. But it, <laughs> I did like the mushroom vision with the lens where it gets all blurry when they're going into the uh, party. Well, and that's another interesting uh, tie-in to watching the lore. Um, do you get a feel for both of these films using more film form to present the more surreal ideas of the film? Mm -hmm. Do you think one has an edge over the other? Part of me wants to say the musical, but I'm also like, I love stuff like the Toxic Avenger musical and some of these more out there one so is it just me or is it the lore really used the this the sonic level really elevated the entire thing the lore has an unfair advantage like it, it nailed it it's so good and it's also got a bigger budget i think um and just you know better creatives the um siren tried there's things in the siren that you know to mouse's point about rules becoming relevant 
and it being really, really clearly explained without feeling overloaded. There's there's a lot of things the sirens trying to say that are maybe a little muddled in the especially in the eyes wide shot party like the guy that invites them with the urn we get like a line he's in the background in the hallway being like four is good right i'll let me see my baby again we have like a shining situation where they go past another room and there's a ghost and like you're putting the pieces together that you know nicks the memory collector is doing something in terms of like stealing your memories and then selling them back to you or they're on loan but and it's fine that it's not completely explained, but it does feel like it needs, like, just a little bit more money and, like, one more writer to take a pass at it mm-hmm. um, and, like, one more good actor to just, like... And so it's trying really hard, but there's there's bits that are beautifully choreographed and, and shot The when they're in the hallways with the doors and the doors. You know, they're just, like, the same hallway over and over again, but they cut it together to be super labyrinthian. And then the, like, daredevil-style fight in the church where – and I'm a sucker for it's really dark and then you, the monster is uh, illuminated only by the gun firing. Mm. Like, that always looks cool. But <laughs> it didn't have to look that cool. They did a really good job with that. And so there's bits where they spend all their effort. And then there's rooms in the plantation house that don't quite get there. Like the the bar, the sideshow, it's like a little it's clearly somebody's house. They're doing their best. Um, yeah. but it's not as eyes wide shut um fancy as everybody wants you to believe that it is. Sure. Yeah, the it's a fucking monster house. I mean, I wish it's definitely a budgetary thing. Like they couldn't show all of the monsters in the monster house, but like uh, periodically they will reveal one. Like the woman, the like the Gorgon with the leeches in her, not a, not Gorgon powers, but looking like Medusa with leeches in her, in her head that she's able to sort of like, and she wears a cool blue wig. I thought that was a very interesting monster design. The design of the siren itself, I think is an interesting monster design, like the face and the teeth and everything. Um, yeah, and then they would just pass pass rooms and you would get a glimpse of like, I don't know, somebody wearing a sheet and that's like a ghost. But they weren't able to sort of develop it. And Nix feels like he's a guy, to your point about casting somebody older, who has like collected a bunch of curiosities and keeps them in his house, which is like a museum of of monsters. Like the... The, his whole like memory plan thing seems to um this sort of clash with the central thrust of the movie which is that he you know kidnapped this this girl and is keeping a siren in his in his house like in a movie with a bigger budget you would have seen like two dozen of those rooms where it's like oh this is just like add it to the collection it seems like she's like the only one really there yeah, they they wanted to do the uh, shoot cabin in the woods thing, yeah. Where it's like you know, a bunch of monsters, and they're so close, and they just like they don't have the budget. They just got a bunch of people in you know Ku Klux Klansman hoods instead, which is its own thing, which I really think is effective as a narrative sort of theming here. But it's not as sort of uh, mythical as I think they probably were were going for. The lore crushes it. Oh, 100%.
Well, what do we think the stake real quick, the stakes yeah. here? So I was having this conversation with, with Maul uh, last night is if the protagonist hadn't unlocked the siren, they, you know, they give up their memories. They have a time. Would they, would they have been allowed to leave? Is this like a first one's free scenario? What is the idea to like have repeat customers come back to this place or were they doomed no matter what? I think it was a very fantasy island situation where the ones who are doomed are doomed. The ones who aren't are free to go without the memory. Like it, that's just it. Uh, very evocative of uh, the oh, what was the Disney film? The uh, the carnival, the the carnival where the uh, the dude is like, I'm taking years away from your soul. That Pinocchio? Uh, no. I'll think of it a bit, but but it's a carnival. It's a film about a traveling carnival, and like the grandfather was like, "No, really, don't go back there." And the kids show mm. up, and the grandfather saves them. It felt very much like that, where you, I think the in in some of the way that horror movies are connected, bro guy was definitely going marked for death the minute he opened his mouth. Yeah. The rest of them were very, very, it was variable depending on how they chose to go into the house, you know? I like your Fantasy Island connection a lot. Yeah. It's a test of your own sort of more internal character of what you get out, what you put in. Yeah, and it's also a cult, right? So he's like mm -hmm. developing followers that have those brands and likely, you know, the obstinate ones would have been killed but like the older brother is definitely joining that cult if the, the siren isn't released um just like amassing an army of 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 people in the world to bring other people back into this house and continue developing this monster house memory cult thing like who knows um they do release the siren. We haven't talked about the siren yet. Yeah, so. I love that, to your point about her design, that everything about her is retractable. Mm -hmm. Like, the tail, the wings, her whole face. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really cool design. Yeah, I think at one, like she's sleeping at one point and, and she wakes up and it's just the actress's face. Mm -hmm. But, like, the more mad she gets, the wider her eyes and the more split her face becomes. Um, This was... uh. And Teddy reminded me of this uh, based on a short in VHS. You want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, the short in VHS, I'll, I'll have to pull up the actual director's name, but essentially it's a found footage, same premise. They're at a bachelor party and they're going to be doing unhinged bachelor things. Don't say no sort of thing. Uh Short and long of it. I believe the short is around 10 minutes, 10, 12 minutes. Mm. Um, and you find out towards the, uh, the the same line the siren actually uses in the same area, the whispering, I like you. And you see a lot less of the both the the siren as well as the kills within the VHS tape because the rest of the VHS uh, that that's uh segment all takes place in the hotel room, uh, which I think is where the rest of the lore kind of diverges between 
uh, VHS and uh, the Siren film itself, mm. um, it ends where she ostensibly carries off the guy and you see a blood-covered VHS uh, as she flies away. Uh, and I've got to say, in terms of the effect, it is more effective than the long version of this film. It's the longer, ver like this version is very fun. It is an incredibly well-made film. It's not, as you said, not quite there, but it's well-made and really great. But the VHS effects and everything they were going for within the Siren short, because of its runtime, it was able to be very punchy. The cuts were felt very natural of found footage where where this is where they turned on and off the camera and the writing held together for that that punch within VHS. Yeah, the found footage element of it allows, especially for low budget horror, allows you to just obfuscate the what whatever big practical or CG effect would be in a normal horror movie, you just sort of like tilt the camera away or reveal only a little bit of it. And that is really well done in that short. It's like very dynamic. There's like a stairwell scene where the camera's just sort of like flipped up and then she's coming down the stairs. It's a really interestingly shot vignette. Um, and it's interesting that the how is Wikipedia, so take it with a grain of salt, that she is described as a succubus um in the short, and this movie is about ostensibly a siren, but also it, it is a succubus in the sort of like traditional understanding of what that is. Like the seduction of men in like dreams or sleep. Is that what the general sort yeah. of? Yeah, that's right. Um, and, you know, succubuses are specifically demonic in a way that sirens aren't necessarily so like the whole summoning circle thing. And he call uh, Nick's calls her Lily, like Lilith. Um, and like that's the, yeah, they're going in a demon direction. I think that there's some, there's a intersection there of demon deal, sex as being transactional. Um, that goes into like a different theme of especially witch lore could, could be and maybe should be a whole nother month, either witches and or like demonic possession, demon deals, transactional nature of, of relationships. Um, but for this one, there's a little bit of overlap there, but they're also doing the classic siren. Like I love, like the recurring motif of people putting headphones in to do the classical like Odysseus stuffs his ears uh, so he can resist the siren really really clever and they they do play on that very effectively and she's fantastic mm -hmm. um that like her body language is great of the sort of animalistic with a lot of sniffing there's a lot of like moving around in weird ways um very effective there is the wikipedia page for succubus says in later for folklore a succubus took the form of of a siren but there's no fucking reference there. So I don't know if they just watched this movie and this, <laughs> this is the later folklore they're referencing. Could be. That's awesome. Um, um, yeah, it does look like they're different writers for the short and the actual film. Interesting. Um, yeah. The So is 
is the point of the movie, I think it's ambiguous. It does he love his wife? Like, how difficult is the decision that he makes at the end for him? Because I think he does. Yeah. I mean, he, the whole thing is about like, just don't hurt her. Like, I'll sure. come with you. His first priority is wrapped up in this again. Um, he's sacrificing himself. And he thinks throughout the movie that he's got like some kind of reasoning with Lilith. We're like, well, yeah, we'll just we'll go our separate ways. We'll go home. To your point about tonight we'll say yes. Like the the message of the movie is like this really interesting inability the tra the tragedy and the horror of not being able to revoke your consent. Like yeah. they say yes once and they can yeah. never the blanket never yes, take everything. everything is on the table. <laughs> yeah, they say yes once and suddenly they're getting their memories stolen. They're getting tattooed and they don't know that they're getting branded. And he's bonded for life to this monster now. He says yes once. So yeah, that's the, the horror of it, of it all follows you home and being unprepared for the consequences. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it just, it did feel like there was some gratification that came via his relationship with the siren. Well, and it's important to remember that every time he has like gratifying sex with it, it's pretending to be his wife. It's true. What about when she sticks her tail up his butt? Well, at first, he's imagining her to be his wife. Like, he, it yeah. pretends to be in the wedding dress, and then he snaps out of it, and then he gets raped. That scene oh, was see, crazy. <laughs> I was about to make a very inappropriate joke, and that last line makes it so I'm not going to say that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> That scene was nuts. I didn't know, you know. Also, like, I think that this movie also plays fast. And, and maybe there's a basis of this in the mythology, but, like, the shape-shifting stuff, is that part of it? Yeah, Succubus, yeah. Incubus, they're shape-shifters. Um, and it's Siren, dude. The movie's called Siren. Well, yeah, they shape-shift, too. <laughs> She's just not a fish. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It's a fair point. But actually, specifically for her um, in Siren, if we think about Greek mythology, like there's a, sometimes they're birds. Like the difference between Siren and a harpy gets a little muddled mm. of, you know, they're feathered, they got wings, but they're also on islands. There's like seabirds sometimes. And so it changes. That's fine. Um, I do, I think it's interesting that like the tail is also retractable, but like she, it's bladed or it can be. Like she stabs Nyx, penetrates him through the mouth out the other side of the head, and it's got a blade on the end. Right. But um, because she likes uh, the protagonist, chooses not to use the blade on him. She's OP for sure. Like the amount of powers she has, she can fly, she can knife you up, she can make you like hallucinate, she can shape shift. She's like very strong, she'll kill you. <laughs> rip your junk out through your jeans. Yeah, he's incredibly just physically strong. Yeah. The and I and I think that the monster design to your just to echo your point cuz I wrote that in my notes was very good. Um and also like very very well 
shot for something of this budget where it's like we're doing close-ups on her face because that's all we have really to demonstrate that she's a monster is like face makeup we can't do her whole body we can't get like wide shots of her that much and we can't have her wings come out that much and not for that long and so we'll have a bunch of extreme close-ups of her face split down the middle with this makeup because we know that's a strength that we have on this production and that'll be like our visual representation of her and it's really cool they're practical effects and they lean on them and they have every right to they're good yeah um okay so yeah this is like all of my notes this does seem like it upends the well, it doesn't upend it. I think both of these movies, if, if to draw parallels to sort of like how these films, all of the ones that we've seen have centralized women as monsters in splice. It's not really, but it is because it has a woman's DNA and is also like some other kind of synthetic monster. Um, this, these two films have this sort of like representations of monsters engaged in sex coded as women who have agency in ways that species, there was some kind of biological or genetic imperative that still had to reproduce. And in life force, it is like they kidnap that woman and bring her to earth. And then she starts, you know, terrorizing everybody. And those like, break that um and so for how well do these movies accomplish that sort of like send up i'd say they it accomplishes it very well for a very specific reason in species splice for us uh, actually splice less but in species and um in splice uh in life force the entirety of well secret organizations or a couple world governments react to the exploration of their um of their powers in this kind of reclamation both of these narrow down the focus to it, it's a much more personal hmm. reaction to it which i think to it, it gives it a lot more credence because they can kind of it doesn't look as goofy to be honest to like try and do all of these giant effects whereas you're like okay no we can keep it contained into these very human stories because frankly not everybody pisses off the government to have them send a lot of uh fbi people to your door you know yeah, that's a great point because sex and intimacy is such a... I think these both do a great job of, to your point, centralizing, narrowing down the focus so it's not like world-ending apocalypse nonsense. Great set of movies this week. Highly recommend Siren and The Lure. And so we'll leave you with a poem by Margaret Atwood this week called Siren Song. This is the one song everyone would like to learn. The song that is irresistible. The song that forces men to leap overboard in squadrons, even though they see the beached skulls. 
the song nobody knows because everyone who has ever heard it is dead and the others can't remember. Shall I tell you the secret, and if I do, will you get me out of this bird suit? I don't enjoy it here, squatting on this island looking picturesque and mythical, with these two feathery maniacs. I don't enjoy singing this trio, fatal and valuable. I will tell the secret to you, to you, only to you. Come closer. This song is a cry for help. Help me! Only you. Only you can. You are unique. At last. Alas, it is a boring song, but it works every time. See you next week, folks. Is this just bad? Bad? It's like what pirates bored your brain, robbing knowledge, no joking. Opening your mind with a crowbar till you woke and hitting Hydra, hailing hairs, had for time for hella reasons. We're more than winter soldiers with the men for all seasons. Listen closely while we share our expertise in cosmic comics culture. Dean is free tuition to the multiversity. Mouse is psycho teaching perfect balance when we snap infinite gems into your ears. Dust our shoulders when we speak. Purple men persuasive feet. Where Randy Savage rattles with their mortal technique. Ooh. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.